Welcome to Engelberg Center Live, a collection of audio from events held by the Engelberg Center on Innovation Law and Policy at NYU Law. This episode is the TLP alums, Perspectives from the Private Sector Panel from the Technology Law and Policy Clinic at 10 event. It was recorded on November 10th, 2023. All right, I'm sorry to pull folks away from these lingering conversations, but we're going to get started. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jake. I'm the deputy director of the clinic, also an alum of the clinic. I graduated from NYU in 2018, obviously clearly never quite graduated from TLP. Um, I'm really glad that we had a full 30-minute break after the last panel, because uh, I was definitely tearing up a little bit watching all of our amazing uh, former students, and I definitely needed some time to compose myself. Now here I am, moderating this next panel, uh, which is uh, the private sector panel. Uh, although, as we'll see in a second, it's actually not made up exclusively of folks currently working in the private sector or in big law. Um, I think that's actually a perfect illustration of the clinic's orientation and its mission. Uh, like NYU uh, itself and the law school, the clinic has a strong uh, commitment to advancing public interest law, uh, although most alums, at least initially or for some time, go on to very successful, very impressive careers in the private sector. Um, but one of the things that the clinic strives to do is to show law students the ways in which those two things, commitment to public interest and work in the private sector, don't need to be either or, uh, especially in the tech law and policy space. Uh, and so I'm sitting up here with three panelists in person and one over Zoom uh, who really represent the arc of TLP over the years. I'll let folks introduce themselves in a bit more detail. Um, but first we have Ava, who graduated, I believe, in 2013. Um, Assistant General Counsel at Lincoln Center, um, 2013, so I guess it's not just TLP's 10-year anniversary today. Um, uh, Florina, uh, Associate at Gibson Dunn, graduated in 2016. Um, Sam on Zoom is Senior Commercial Counsel at Full Story, graduated in 2019, I believe. And Ethan Lynn, an associate at Brown Rudnick, sitting to my far right, uh, graduated a couple of years ago in 2021. Uh, so after folks introduce themselves, I'll open things up with a few softball questions. Hopefully we can turn this into a bit of a conversation. Um, but for now, um, maybe, Sam, we could start with you over Zoom, if you wouldn't mind sharing uh, a bit about your current role, uh, your path from the clinic to where you are now, and if you remember uh, what your clinic project or projects were uh, back in the day. Yeah, sounds good. Can everyone hear me? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Great. Awesome. Uh, hi, everyone. I am so sad that I couldn't uh, be with you in person, but honestly, the biggest change since I left the clinic is that I am a new mom, and my kid is sick, so here I am at home. <laughs> Um, so I actually uh, had a bit of an unusual career path and basically took all of the traditional components for how someone would get to an in-house role like mine, uh, kind of threw them in a cup, shook them up like Yancey Dice and spit them out and ran order. So uh, I started after, uh, after college um, at a nonprofit and I was the only employee for three years, somewhere in the middle of that doing all of the things. Um, I realized that I really loved working with our attorneys on partnership agreements. And that was a really weird and very specific nerdy thing to say, so I figured I should look into it. Took the LSATs, uh, thought I was going to law school, kind of took a hard turn and went to Google 
uh, because my roommate at the time was at Google and said, well, it's a lovely dream that you want to go be a, a nonprofit contracts attorney, but what about this role at Google where you can figure out what you want to do, see if this is really it, uh, and you know, hey, there's free food too. So I was like, cool, let's, uh, let's listen to what they have to say. Um, decided to go with it, absolutely loved every single second. I thought I was going to be there for a year, then go to law school, continue on my dream to become a nonprofit contracts attorney, uh, and ended up loving it so much that I stayed for uh, almost seven years. <laughs> so um, at that point, um, I sort of maxed out the non-attorney roles, uh, decided to actually go to law school, um, took a, a leap of faith, went full-time, and left Google, um, and ended up at NYU. Loved it there, too. Then went to uh, a, a firm afterwards, so tech transactions, um, staying kind of within my, my tech world that I really loved. Um, and then uh, I thought I was always going to go back to Google, but uh, I ended up getting a cold call from Full Story, where I am now. Figured I'd listen to the pitch. Turned out it was a pretty good pitch. Loved it here too, so I've been here for three years now. Uh, and then for the project, uh, I definitely remember my project. It was a lot of fun. Um, I am a, a self-admitted copyright nerd through and through. Um, so I worked with a, a wonderful nonprofit institution to help them with DMCA uh, takedown rules um, and ended up helping them uh, kind of revamp their entire online terms of service as well. So that's fun. Awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah. Sorry, no? um, so I am currently a seventh year associate doing IP. At, I'm a seventh year associate at Gibson Dunn doing exclusively IP in what is generally unusual, I do both high-tech patent litigation and also tech transactions licensing, M&A support as an IP specialist. So it's all IP, but it's split. If anyone here is a student and thinking about doing that, I would advise against it. Do not do that. <laughs> um, how did I get there? I was in college as an electrical engineer and afterwards went to a small firm called Elysium Digital, which was then acquired by Strauss Friedberg and then acquired by Aon. Um, to do computer science consulting. So our clients were the lawyers in high-tech patent litigation. This was at the height of the cell phone wars. And I was like, I'm so smart. Why are these lawyers not listening to me when I'm telling them that I've looked at the code and this is what's happening and this is what they should say? Um, so I went to law school and found out that there's a lot going on in patent litigation that's not just what the source code actually says. Um, I came to NYU specifically for patent litigation and I came out wanting to do that. I went to my first law firm, and between the time I was a summer and two months into my time there, all of the high-tech patent partners either retired or went to another law firm. Um, so I stuck around, and I ended up doing really interesting work in both copyright litigation. I was on um, sort of not district court litigation at the Copyright Royalty Board. I was doing trade secret things, I was doing trademark things, and always wanting to get back to patent litigation. I went to Gibson Dunn and I told them up front, I said, hey, I would love to do patent litigation and um, transaction work. Your free market system, is that for real? Can I actually do that? And they said, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. Um, so after my first year of doing like 120% patent litigation, I managed to start taking more corporate work really enjoyed it, and after coming back from attorney leave, got to do more and more of it, and that's where I am now. For my clinic courses, after multiple applications, I got into two semesters. The first one was a um, very traditional sort of amicus brief on Fifth Amendment issues where can the police force you to give them your password to decrypt your phone? Um, 
this was 2015 in the fall, and then I got an email, I think, five years later that it was parts of that brief were used successfully, um, which was very exciting. And then in the second semester, I worked with the New York Public Library on various projects relating to ebooks. Hi, am I next? Um, Ava, um, I was class of 2013, and I was part of the original group of students who petitioned for this clinic. So I am so, so thrilled to see that it's still going strong. I'm so happy to be back 10 years later. Um, I am Assistant General Counsel at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. Um, and how did I get there? I came to law school knowing I wanted to be an IP lawyer. I wanted to be an IP lawyer since I was about 10 years old. Um, one of my parents' friends worked on the Wind Gone case, and I just thought it was the coolest thing. Um, so I wanted to be an IP lawyer, and I came here, and I wanted to make the IP community at NYU um, really robust and, and strong. Um, after law school, I went to Jenner and Block and did IP litigation. Uh, copyright and trademark specifically. Um, I was there for two years and then took a pause and clerked on the Southern District of New York um, where I got to do a trademark case uh, trial, which was fun as well. Um, and then went back to Jenner and Block for, I think it was two years, three years. And then I was doing pro bono work um, for Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts while I was at Jenner. Uh, and that's how I made my transition in-house. Um, and it's just so nice. I mean, I know Florina actually from college. We didn't overlap at the law school, but I feel like the clinic just has such a strong sense of community and family. It was really nice at the happy hour last night. Um, I met some students, uh, former students and current students who um, were summer associates at Jenner and Block and did pro bono work for, for Lincoln Center. I was out on maternity leave this summer, so didn't get to overlap with them. Um, but just it's really nice to have uh, like-minded people with uh, had such interesting um, thoughts and be able to connect. So that's oh, and my project. Um, my project was a fair use project, um, which is still very much <laughs> much doing. It's it, not much has changed, um, and it was there was a playwright uh, who was taking snippets of um, language from a famous children's author and created a play out of them. And uh, I was the author's writings, both in terms of letters, personal letters, and um, the fictional works. Um, and it was really fun. Thanks. Ethan? Hi, I'm Ethan. Uh, I'm a third year associate at Brown Brodnick. I'm in the patent litigation group, and I'm also in the uh, data privacy and cybersecurity group. Um, and I, I'm happy that I'm get, I get to do work in an area of law that I'm interested in, and I am able to do this area of um, work in this area because of my clinical experience. Um, I don't have a science background, so I never expected that I'm gonna end up working as a patent litigator, because very typically they look for people with patent litigation experience. Um, but because of my project at the Technology Law and Policy Clinic, um, out of that experience, I ended up publishing a white paper on reforming a, a patent term extension provision. Um, I was representing uh, I was in a group representing Prep for All, which is an advocacy group whose mission is to gain uh, fight for universal access to medication. And at the time, one of our strategies is to fight a patent term extension um, by bringing attention to uh, the patent and trademark office, uh, some gamesmanship behavior on the part of a pharmaceutical company. Um, and there is an explicit rule 
the head of the patent trademark office has an explicit rule of no third party challenges um, to patent term extensions, and we felt that that like that's really messed up, and um, and that's inspired my work in drafting this white paper. Um, and at the time, I had this really limiting belief that like, oh, I couldn't do patent work because I don't have a technical background. I didn't even take a patent law course because I didn't think that, well, who would want to hire me doing this area of law? But it just so happens that my group was, uh, when I started my work, the group was growing. They needed some juniors. And I was one of the few people who have anything to do with patents. Um, and so I was placed in that group. And it turns out I could do this area of work. It's just that I kept telling myself I couldn't. Um, but yeah, it, it's because of the clinic that I was able to do this area, of, uh, work in this area of law. And for the data privacy and cybersecurity part of my work, um, I was able to kind of help make that group happen in a sense because I reach out to a transactional uh, partner who does some policy advisory work and he is kind of an expert in cyber law. And I was like, hey, this is a very hot area. This is an area of law that I'm interested in. I have a certificate showing that like I have knowledge in this patchwork of regulations in the US. Like, If you ever have any work in this if, if that touches on data privacy, I'm happy to help out. So that we ended up forming a small group. Um, and this also, and my experience in data privacy is also based in part of the work that I've done, done in the clinic. Um, I worked on, I created my, my own project on examining a portion of uh, HIPAA privacy laws. And, um, and Jason and Brett and Chris were very supportive of me just like launching my own project within the clinic, which is super cool. Um, but it's because of that experience I was able to kind of like put, put myself into in this position of like forming this group at my firm. Um, so um, anyway, yeah, so that, that's my spiel of <laughs> where I am. Thank you. So on, on that note, actually, um, and sort of continuing the theme of reflection for today, uh, I'd like to start off by asking all of you to address, I think, a, a related question, which is, can you identify a specific memory experience lesson from your clinical experience uh, that has really influenced your career, that's really sat with you uh, or changed the way you think about practice or the law? Um, and Sam, maybe we can continue in this same order and we'll have you go first. You got it. Uh, so um, I think my absolute fondest memory of the clinic is, uh, is probably just arguing with Jason all the time. <laughs> um, I think we agreed on very little in the law, which was awesome because uh, it helped me form my own opinions because I needed to be able to tell him why I disagreed on something. So um, I absolutely love it. Um, and I think if there's anything that I could, uh, you know, could impart to uh, to you know, current and future students would just be, um, don't be afraid to have your own opinions, and don't just assume that uh, that even your professors are correct. Um, but I think uh, for me, you know, I, I even had a, a fairly long legal career even before I got to law school. So uh, the amazing team at Google had taught me how to be a lawyer and what to do as a lawyer. Um, but law school is where I learned why I was doing all the things I was doing as a lawyer. Um, and I think uh, it's just, I don't know, I think uh, Google taught me how to be a good lawyer. NYU taught me how to be an opinionated lawyer. <laughs> and I learned uh, you know, what I wanted to do uh, when it came to reviewing a contract or what I thought the right position was on something. So 
Um, that's definitely just my, my absolute favorite memory of the clinic and, and probably one of the most valuable things I took away from not just the clinic, but all of law school was just uh, finding my voice as a lawyer and being able to say, this is what I believe and why. Now tell me why I'm wrong so that I can try to tell you why you're wrong. Um, and just that back and forth really helps you form your own opinions. And I think one thing that I love about tech law and IP law is that these are not settled issues of law. There are no black and white rules for the most part. So, um, you know, just learn those basics so that you can then interpret it and form your own opinions about the things happening around you. Thanks. Florina? Um, so the traditional project I mentioned, the amicus brief, was with Brett and with Alex Abdo at the ACLU. And it was so, I think it was the first time that I'd spent basically an entire semester writing one piece of work. Um, my partner and I had multiple revisions and I was looking in my emails and what we actually submitted was version eight. And this was, no, I'm sorry, I don't know where Michael Goodyear is, but no offense to the lawyering program here, but it was the first time that someone told me how to write persuasively. It was the first time somebody said, nobody has time to actually read very closely everything that you're spending all this time thinking and writing about. So you need, you know, basic things, great topic sentences, very persuasive headings. And these are things that can take you into email writing, into brief writing, into just general writing. Um, I think that's stayed with me more than, more than anything else, more than the substance of the law, more than the conversations that we had, which I really enjoyed. But that one, I frequently think about them. Uh, for mine, uh, we were working, our client was an artist and an individual and counseling her with no, I mean, she was interested in the law, but uh, not a legal training. Um, and I think that has come full circle for my position now at Lincoln Center. I'm working with our um, colleagues in the different business units who are not legally trained. So the way I counsel in-house is a little bit different from when I was at a law firm where my clients were lawyers themselves. Um, so we spent all this time doing a fair use analysis. We read all the cases. We had this whole complicated chart of all the factors and all the different cases. But when it came to speaking with our client, it wasn't going to be as useful to share that kind of product if we really needed to be direct um, and speak with her um, in terms of uh, counseling what the risks were and help her come to her decision of how she wanted to proceed. Um, and that's very much uh, in my practice today as well. I think one insight that I've gained um, by working on my project with Prep for All uh, at the clinic is that um, I think that serves as a very good, good example of kind of thinking out of the box for solutions to clients' problems and um, seeing how social change happens. Because I think very often when I think about um, social change by through like engaging with the law, I think about impact litigation. But there's also like litigation is just like one tool in the box to affect social change. And it happens in the context of social change. And sometimes like when that avenue is close to you, there are many other avenues that you can engage in. Um, so for Prep for All, they wanted to challenge um, a patent term extension by bringing attention to the gamesmanship behavior um, that the pharmaceutical company was engaging in. And 
Um, as I mentioned previously, we try to petition the pa uh, Patent and Trademark Office, but there's a no third-party petitioning rule, and based on that rule, it was rejected. But that wasn't a it wasn't a useless exercise because with that petition in hand, we were able to go to Congress and talk to congressional aides and bring attention um, to the to what Gilead, uh, the pharmaceutical company, was doing, and then eventually we got a lot of press attention on, on it, um, and that's like, and then we got congressional members to. Tweet, uh, you know, bring attention to the public. Like, like tw sorry, tweet these news articles. That's uh, and recently, there's another news article that came out like just a couple of months ago about the same exact gamesmanship behavior that um, that the pharmaceutical companies engaged in. Um, so you know, it's like there there are lots of different ways to try to affect social change, and part of it is like all this public attention on the pharmaceutical co companies' behavior like applies pressure on them because they know the activists are watching them now. And I think this does send a message to a lot of companies that you know, if you try to, uh, try to game the system and, and extend your patent this way, you're going to get a lot of negative press. And I do think like, that's something that's, that could potentially shape the behavior of these companies. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a, anyway, so like to, to wrap it up, I think it's like really like cool to see how even when one avenue is close to you, there are so many mechanisms um, for you to, to drive social change. Thanks. So on that note again, Ethan, you talked a bit about the, the social justice, public interest work that you did in, in the clinic. Um, but of course, to put it mildly, when you're at a firm in private practice, uh, there's not always such a clear alignment between uh, a sort of general vision of the public interest and the goals of your client. Um, so I wanted to ask the four of you, how do you see the, the public interest values um, that the clinic represents um, reflected in the work that you've done since, whether that's pro bono projects you've taken on, uh, the ways in which you approach counseling your private sector clients, uh, different jobs that you've had. Um, and again, Sam, I'd love to start with you. Sure. Um, yeah, so, you know, this one is, um, is an interesting one. You know, I uh, actually started at a nonprofit before um, I really started my legal journey. Um, at NYU, I even took uh, nonprofit law thinking there was still a chance I might veer back into that world. Um, I stayed in the tech world in the private sector, but I think uh, there's a few ways that it, it sticks with me every day. You know, one is just understanding different types of organizations really helps you be a better lawyer for whichever one you happen to be representing. And I think being able to see, you know, okay, this is the legal question I'm grappling with today. It would be different for this type of organization and this type of organization the right answer for my client is this. Um, but being able to see all of those views is really important. So I think for me, you know, doing a, a project with a nonprofit for the clinic um, you know, really helped cement those skills as a lawyer, because um, I hadn't been in the nonprofit world for, for quite some time at that point. Um, so I really love that. And then you know, the other thing is, like, if there's of course always the question of what is right for your client, but also, just what is right, what is the right thing to do, full stop. And yes, sometimes there's a different answer for those two questions, but I don't really believe that that's where it ends. So, uh, you know, there's a sort of cynical view that could say, well, you know, the answer for your client is whichever one is gonna help them make money. Uh, they're a company, they wanna make money, that's the end of it. But I never believe that, <laughs> I don't believe that. Um, I don't think that's ever where it stops. So I think for me, you know, really 
thinking about things from the different lenses of, of different types of organizations also really helps answer that question of what is the right answer overall. And I think there's there's very often space to say, okay, well we could do this and we can make lots of money, or we can do this because it's the right thing to do, and here's why this actually helps you in the long run. Um, and to me, that's that's kind of always the answer. So again, just having those different perspectives, I think, really helps you figure out how you want to counsel your client. Thanks, Dorina. So my answer is framed as a big law associate who, although I can volunteer for more work, I rarely get to choose the cases I'm on. Um, so to address the point from some of the student speakers earlier, I get to pick when I'm picking pro bono. Um, one of my favorite organizations is Start Small, Think Big, and I've worked with multiple clients there to do things like website terms of service or really basic licenses. And um, that's just the best way where I get to choose and I choose the things that are more technology oriented. So if anyone, you know, if your firm works with them or if you just want to reach out, it's, it's a great place to work with. Do you mind just talking a little bit about their mission, what they do? So they help with both legal, I think some financial and marketing as well, advice for businesses that make, I think it's under $1 million a year. And the people that I've spoken to through there are much smaller than that. Most recently I worked with a babysitting service that's located in Midtown and they're trying to attract people through their website. And so, you know, they have a form on their website where they're asking for children's names and ages. And they collect credit card information through their website. And then it goes to an email inbox. And for me, I'm not, you know, my main job is not a privacy attorney. But I know enough that I'm like, you know, there's some red flags here. <laughs> You should probably consider not doing it like this. Um, and reframing the things that you know that are setting off, I can see in the audience, all these alarm bells into somebody who is trying so hard to grapple with the changes in their business that are happening you know, as more people are working from home, as the COVID shutdown is you know, decimating their business. How do you change as there are more and more services like Bright Horizons that are taking away the business that you've been counting on for your staff? Um, and the question is, how do you frame those issues that would both serve her, not set off you know, any panic unnecessarily, but that would try to get her a little bit more protected in case something does go wrong? Um, so I was talking with Jason before about how I'm maybe the interloper on this panel, because um, I do work at a, at a nonprofit. It is obviously a, a major institution in the city, so there are certain things in terms of just being a, in the general counsel's office that has some similarities to um, more big law or, or a private organization, but we are a nonprofit. Um, and very much, I, I moved, made the move because I was so attracted to working for an organization that has a mission. Um, and our mission is very much seeing ourselves at the center of the city um, and promoting civic good and putting the arts um, in the center of that and what the importance is of the arts to uh, the well-being of the community. So everything we do is, is around that lens. And Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, a lot of people don't know this actually, is a separate 501c3 from all the constituents. We're not um, the Metropolitan Opera. We're not the New York City Ballet. We have contractual relationships with all of them. But Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts manages the campus. And then we have our own programming. And currently, Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts programming is all either free or choose what you pay. Um, so that's in that transformation to choose what you pay. As you can imagine, there's some interesting legal questions that came, came up around that and figuring out how to make that 
work out. Um, but we're very much here to serve our community and the city. Um, but before that, when I was at a law firm too, I, as, as Lorena mentioned, pro bono work um, and Jenner and Block has won for years, many, many, many consecutive years as the number one pro bono firm. So in addition to having a strong content media and entertainment practice, I was attracted to their commitment to pro bono um, and the ability to to serve that way. Um, and I'm also on the Associates Board of Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts and did Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts cases when I was out of, out of firm. Nice. Thank you. Ethan? Um, I think the bulk of my work is kind of neither here nor there, but occasionally I get to work on certain projects where I, I can kind of get the have a discussion about like the public's interest or get the client to consider some aspects of that. Um, so I think drafting of privacy policies is one of those projects where um, someone's interested in launching uh, a website to sell a product or a service. So I ask them questions about what kind of tracking technologies um, are you using because I have to disclose all of that in the privacy policy for compliance purposes. But then you also try to get the client to think beyond just mere compliance with the bare minimum, um, but also think like the bigger picture, like what, what does it look like for a person who was like holding that data, for instance. Um, and you can sometimes deliver this, this advice and like in the language of like kind of like risk management or, or like, you know, you want to maintain like a good relationship with the public. So it's like, um, you know, or like, you know, like, do, do you need to use the Facebook pixel, for instance, because there's currently a lot, lots of litigation happening around that you might potentially run into trouble or um, if you're trying to project like a more privacy, like protective image, it's not it's not a good thing to have to be using this tracking technology. Um, so I think sometimes you can get them to do like, you know, much better than just meeting the bare minimum of for compliance reasons, but also thinking more about um, just kind of like data hygiene and um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So shifting gears slightly, um, I think I personally, but I think we all would love to just hear a little bit more about what you all are up to in your current roles. Um, and specifically, like to the extent you can talk about it, uh, what's a cool tech law and policy issue or project that you've had to handle recently? Um, so Sam, again, we'll start with you if you don't mind. Not at all. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I love about my job is that uh, everything feels like a new cool project to me every day. Um, I came in as like. How do we all get that job? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, honestly, follow your gut. Just, you, you get a vibe if you're really going to love something. Just follow what you love to do. Um, you know, I think for me, like my my happy place has always been contracts and IP. Um, I came into Full Story as lawyer number two, um, and we've been growing the legal team, and uh, I got to come in and sort of, you know, build the commercial function and just say, okay, you know, here's everything that I've learned in my career to date from the firm, from Google, from law school. Here's how I think we should do contracts at Full Story. Um, and that's kind of a, a cool thing to be able to just say, you know, okay, I think I know how to do this. Um, and it's... Uh, it's, it's an interesting thing to do for the first time, but um, I love it. Uh, there's a lot of freedom. There's a lot of um, a lot of space to say, uh, you know, this is how I believe that things should be done, um, and that's something that really excites me. Um, and then, you know, when you're at a, a startup, uh, you kind of do a little of everything. Um, Ethan, I was laughing when you said that you know you didn't do a, a patents class at NYU because 
Um, that is probably one of my biggest regrets. Uh, my 2L year, it conflicted with copyright, and my 3L year, it conflicted with trademarks, so I never took patents either. But now I'm kind of a patent attorney. I run our, our whole patent portfolio, so, uh, you know, I, I did have my SIP certification for privacy from uh, my years at Google, um, but I, I kind of promised myself I would never be a privacy attorney, but yeah, sure, I'm also sort of a privacy attorney. Like, when you're in-house at a, a startup, you're doing everything. Um, and you, you need to know enough to be able to raise those red flags, um, but you also just need to know what you don't know and rely on a network of people to help you. So, you know, for me, you know, obviously I, I don't trust myself to manage a patent portfolio completely on my own, but we have excellent outside counsel who I do trust, um, and you can you know, sort of rely on those experts. Um, but I've reached out to my, my professors at NYU many times to just say, hey, I'm grappling with this weird issue. Here's what I think the, the, you know, the right answer is. Do you agree? Do you, do you think I should do something differently? How would you approach this? Um, and I, I kind of love that. So um, I wouldn't even point to like a specific thing and say, this is my cool project. I just love that every day is a new challenge. Things are coming up. We're you know, building new products, dealing with you know, how, how technology evolves. Uh, you know, certainly if I had to point to one thing, we, like every company on the planet pretty much right now, are trying to grapple with the, uh, the potential uses of AI in our space. Um, and that's certainly something that we're, we're grappling with every day. But, um, you know, the reality is, like, you just need to know your craft really well and be able to adapt it to whatever comes through the door that day. Um, and that's, that's what I love about my job. Thanks. I don't think I have anything as cool to say. Um, like, I kind of like doing due diligence, and that's not, I mean, I just, you get to see a lot of other people's contracts, and after a while you start seeing, you're like, hey, you made some terrible choices, or hey, this is really elegantly written, like, this is, this is elegant. I never thought I would say that. Um, but the one cool project that I got to do was because somebody was out on leave, and that was to help a social media company who was revising their user terms and policies. And so not we, I wasn't working on the terms of use in general, and I wasn't working on the privacy policy in particular, but there were a lot of like tertiary policies about, um, there was a separate IP ownership policy where if somebody is reusing you know, who owns what and what does the company get to own and what do other users get to use. Um, and just sort of different ways of incentivizing users. And it was very interesting because this was one of the earliest projects that I've gotten to do where you're not doing anything in a vacuum. Like anything you suggest to inside council, they're gonna take back that week or the next week to go to the engineers and the engineers are like, no, but it'd be really cool if we had this data. Like we really want this data. <laughs> um, and, and you know, how do you communicate that so that the company is abiding by the terms that they're purporting to put out? Um, that was really fun. Mm. That was that was like the coolest thing I've gotten to do. Those terms are not live still, so I I can't tell you what it is, but it was cool. It was fun. Awesome, thanks. Um, one of my biggest fears. I, I really worked, liked litigation, and I really liked work, working at the firm I worked at. So one of my biggest fears moving in house was that I was going to be bored just working on contracts and. Um, I can tell you safely that is very much not true. Um, like Sam, I just, every day is a new interesting uh, question and issue that comes up. And not all of them in the technology and, and policy um, space, but um, a lot. And so I do a lot of work for our venue sales uh, team and our programming team and our social media team. 
Um, in venue sales, you might not immediately think IP, but uh, we do a lot of film shoots, um, TV shows, and their IP questions will come up. Of course, we're this iconic space in the middle of the city, and we have all sorts of public art um, and art. And so thinking through all the layers of who owns what um, and, and making sure that there's proper clearances um, for the particular uses at issue is something that comes up. Um, and programming when we're commissioning new works, um, putting protections in the contract for us, but also working with artists to make sure you know, that their process and their vision um, can come to life and also at the same time mitigate, mitigate risks um, is always, always interesting. Um, AI, of course, everybody's talking about AI. If this panel was a year ago, everybody was talking about the metaverse, um, and then those those issues are coming up, and, and we're you know trying to do art in those spaces as well. Um, AI from the perspective of commissioning art, and then also just what do we do with our own our own staff and our own policies around use of AI and using AI to create social media posts, things like that. Um, I don't know, I could go on and on. I mean, like, to example, in non-tech space, one question that came up was I had to research flag law and what position various flags needed to be on um, in campus. Um, yeah, it, it really runs the gamut. I, I'm constantly learning new things. Amazing. Ethan? Um, I think my one cool project might be a pro bono work, uh, pro bono matter I'm taking on. and. It's gonna sound extremely boring. It's trademark registration, and it's just a very like, there's nothing like special, like legally interesting about this trademark registration matter. Um, but I, I thought about like, like I can kind of make a case for like why this is cool. In that um, before law school, I used to work as a fundraiser, and I know that like uh, supporting colleagues who are doing things that are just changing the world or fighting the good fight and doing things that sound really cool. Whereas like. I'm just trying to raise money. Um, and that doesn't sound very cool in itself, but like maintenance work is cool in a sense in, in that like in order for the cool stuff to happen, someone needs to be doing all the stuff behind the scenes. And and I think like with trademark registration, I'm, I'm helping a friend out who um, is the leader of a nonprofit. They're looking to merge with another organization to strengthen their policy arm. And they need to register, they need to do a trademark clearance and then a trademark registration in, uh, as part of this merger. And I'm like, I'm, I'm making this project happen. It's a project that they're working on is super cool. They're doing really great work. Um, and I'm doing this thing that's necessary, that's within my skill sets, because they need someone to do, have some sort of trademark experience. And like, they don't know anyone who knows how to do this except for me. And I'm like, I'm happy to lend a hand and do this thing, even though it's like, there's nothing legally interesting about doing this, but it's, it's uh, but you know, I think there are many different ways to support things are really cool things are happening so and i i like to i also like doing kind of like behind the scenes work um so that's that's my cool project <laughs> that's super interesting um and i think helpful uh especially for current students who are in the room uh to think about what paths they might be taking uh, and the sort of work that they might be able to do in each of those paths and so in that vein um, Sam, I, I know you, you mentioned your, uh, one of your biggest regrets in law school is not taking patents. Um, for the current students in the room, um, what advice do you have for them uh, if they want to pursue career in tech law and policy more generally, um, to pursue a career that somewhat aligns with the paths that 
you all have taken? What experiences should they be trying to soak up in law school? Or what are, what are the sort of next legal, legal frontiers uh, that they should be concerned about, thinking about? Uh, Ava, to, to use your formulation, like if we had this panel last year, we would be talking about the metaverse this year, it's AI, in like five years, uh, what, uh, you know, in the 15 year reunion, uh, what, what are going to be the, the sets of legal issues that uh, future alums of the clinic, who are current students now, um, who are going to be on this panel in five years, and you're all out there, um, should be thinking about now? Sam? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm actually not going to say take patents. I, I do wish I had taken patents, but um, just take classes that you really love, um, that really excite you, and figure out what that is. Um, I think a lot of my friends in law school were just so focused on what should I take, what should I do, how do I get from point A to point B, that they kind of forgot to have fun in law school and just enjoy some of the, the, you know, the academic fun of it. Um, so just, you know, don't worry so much about which classes you really should take, and take the things that excite you and interest you. Um, but also, you know, don't, don't just dive down one rabbit hole, try to get as, as much of a breadth of experience as you can. So, um, you know, I, I love when people say, well, I don't want to be a privacy lawyer, so I'm not going to take a privacy class. I'm like, well, you should definitely take a privacy class if you're going into tech law, <laughs> um, full stop. But, you know, you should just assume that you are going to be a generalist in your career, you may end up focusing, and maybe that's what you decide that you really love. And in that case, jump down that rabbit hole, have fun with it. But um, you know, I think there's a lot of twists and turns in a career, and if you have a breadth of knowledge, you'll be prepared to get yourself a deeper understanding of the things that really come up in your day-to-day -day job. But uh, that would be my, my biggest thing. And then you know, the other one is just uh, focus on the people. You're not going to remember. But, you know, three years from now, uh, frankly, you're not even going to remember which classes you, you took specifically, but you are going to remember your professors. You're definitely going to remember your, your classmates. Um, just form deep connection with the people around you. Um, I reach out to my professors all the time, like I said, to ask for advice in my job, to ask about things that they're doing, to just say hi because I miss them. Um, I have a cookie party every year. I send them cookies. I mean, it, like, just... You know, talk to people around you, really form those connections, because this is your chance to do that, and they will follow you forever. Thanks. So one thing that I think everyone here has heard each of us up here say is that we are doing work that relates to contracts. Um, as a law student, you only see litigation. Even your contracts course is only litigation. Mm -hmm. So until I was in this clinic and working for the New York Public Library on some like one-page, two-page agreements, I had no exposure to what it was like to be a lawyer and not do litigation. I think that's the biggest regret that I have and the thing that I say to all law students who are asking me, hey, you know, I'm thinking about this. And I say, well, have you thought about not going into litigation? Because although I've really enjoyed my time, the exit opportunities, unless you want to go do litigation at a bank, are poor. Um, so if you can get any experience, just any experience that is not litigation, jump on it. Whether it's a class for patent licensing, whether it's a clinical experience, whether it's pro bono work, um, because I discovered much later than I should have that I really like corporate work. And if I had begun it sooner, um, I think things would be looking very differently. I'd echo both piece of advices. Um, that, that, that's kind of where I was going to go as well. I was a litigator and moving in-house um, 
you know, I think it is easier to make that transition. That's probably what all litigators would say. I'd say the litigators and the transactional attorneys like to think that like you can't learn learn the opposite opposite ways. But I do think that's true because at least in litigation, when you're in a firm, you are looking at a contract and usually you're seeing something that's gone wrong um, and seeing it from that perspective. So you have some um, familiarity with it, but it's still not the same as sitting down and drafting a contract. And um, at Lincoln Center, we're really fortunate. We're, uh, we've worked with the Business Transactions Clinic here at NYU for a number of years. Um, and Naveen, who I know is no longer teaching that clinic, but teaches a contracts drafting course that I understand is one of the most popular courses at the law school. I highly recommend you take that course. I wish I'd taken that course. Um, I think it's just amazing to get that opportunity to have um, contract experience when you're in law school. Um, indemnification, limitation of liability, that's kind of what it all comes down to in any contract, no matter what it's about. <laughs> so understanding those concepts and knowing how to pull those levers to mitigate risk. Um, and then to echo what Sam was saying, really, you learn to be a lawyer after law school. Um, I mean, clinic helps, clinic, and, and that's to echo Florina taking clinic and Sam as well taking clinic. That's really great because you get some of your to dip your toe in, in the water of learning what it's like to be a practicing lawyer. But most of what I learned in terms of really practicing was at, at the law firm and my, my job now. Um, so take classes that you enjoy, learn the doctrine, um, engage with it, and have fun. I don't have much anything new to add. I want to echo um, everyone's advice. Like I want to echo what Sam said. Uh, take a wide breadth of classes and take classes and things you're interested in. Don't think about whether or not it's going to be useful for your career because I think there's a lot of randomness in life and you don't know where you're going to end up. You might not like the first job that you're at and then want to explore something else and then it might come to, come to be useful in the future. Um, and yeah, and echoing um, Ava and Florina, like, I think contracts is a good idea. I took the contract drafting class with Naveen. It was a really great mm. class. Um, you're probably going to encounter contracts at some point, one way or another. Um, and sometimes, like, just even like in your personal life, people <laughs> sometimes you have to sign contracts and like look at your lease or whatever. And it's like I find that like contract drafting, it's it's helpful. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't have anything else to add. So, oh, can I make one addition? Please, go ahead. If you're a summer associate, that's also an opportunity when you can try something new. Yeah. Definitely take advantage of that. Because once you're started, you don't have so much bandwidth. Thanks. I want to redirect this question slightly. I just asked you all uh, if you had advice for students. Uh, I want to ask you if you have advice for the clinic um, or the clinical program at NYU more broadly. Uh, what sorts of experiences should we be creating for our students' skills we should be providing them with training for, to help prepare them for careers in the tech law policy space. Really, what do you wish you had done in the clinic uh, or at NYU uh, or learned in the clinic or at NYU that, that you did looking back? Sam? Yeah, uh, so I think the first thing, there's a couple of things that I'd say. One of them is um, how to learn something completely new, completely from scratch, on your own, outside the classroom. Um, and that is something that you are going to have to do in your job, no matter what you do. Um, and I think, you know, part of your previous question about, you know, for students, what's like sort of the next thing that they should be looking for, I kind of intentionally didn't answer that, because it, 
it kind of doesn't matter. I mean, you know, we've seen so many spikes in technology, so many new evolutions in technology. We don't know what the next thing is going to be, and that's great. That's exciting. That's awesome. That is the whole point of technology. Um, but you know, when you go out into the world, you are going to be, you know, not on your own, but you're going to be more on your own than you are now. Um, you're not going to be able to just walk into class and say, hey, tell me how to do this thing. Tell me what the right answer is. Um, so just, you know, being able to say, okay, here are the things that I do know. I do know the basics of copyright law. I do know the basics of, you know, of, of patent law. Um, and say, okay, here's the issue I'm grappling with. How might that translate into this thing? Now let me do some research and see if other people are saying similar things. Um, you know, oh gosh, someone else said, you know, this thing, how do I interpret that? And just sort of braid it all together into coherent advice for your client. Um, so I think just like being able to learn something outside of a classroom without a textbook, without a professor, um, is a really, really, really important skill. Um, and then the other thing, which is advice that was given to me when I started at Google um, by forever and always my, my favorite boss I've ever had and probably ever will, uh, said to me, we're not here to say no. Lawyers say no a lot, but we're not here to say no. We're here to tell someone how to get to yes. So, hey, can we do this thing? Yes, but. <laughs> yes, but if you do that, you'll go to jail. You're there to say, you know, yeah, sure, you can do that, but here's what will happen if you do. Um, you know, yes, and if we did this thing, you know, on top of that, that would be even better, and here's why. Um, you know, yes, but what if we do it this way um, instead? Or, you know, yes, but we really need this thing, so where can we, you know, insert this? Like, you know, if, for example, you need someone to accept your online terms in order to use your service. Okay, well, how can we do that in a really seamless way? So, like, you know, where in the sign-up flow is the right place to put this? How do we do it the best way? But you're not there to say, you know, no, you can't do this thing. It's really helping your client figure out how to achieve their goals in the best way possible. And that's that takes creativity. There's, there's a different answer every single time you answer that question. And um, that's a really important skill that I think a lot of people don't think about until they're out of law school. So like when you're in law school, you're like, what's the, the right answer? What's the right way to do a thing? Um, but that really depends on what your goals are. And your goals are gonna be very different, not only for every client, but for every transaction for every client. So if you're you know, negotiating a contract, what's your actual goal? Are you there to get the deal done with reasonable risk? Are you there to truly say, we don't want any risk in this deal? Um, are you there to say, you know, hey, we gotta sign the thing today, so what's the one red flag we should care about? but you're going to negotiate very differently in all those situations. So just sort of understanding the context for what you're doing and how to get there on your own is the most important skill. And I, I think the clinic did a great job of that for me when I was advising uh, you know, our client on, on copyright stuff and also on the terms of service, but really hone those skills and, and help students figure out how to do that on their own. So to jump off from Sam's point about goals, I think the most valuable thing, so. I guess mine's also not what you should do better, but keep up the good work. One of the most valuable things was having, uh, having a client, having an audience who is not just a professor who gives you one grade and you move on, um, is really valuable because until you are at a law firm and are getting a little more senior, the only thing you do is send work up. Um, whereas in the clinic, working with the public library, 
our audience, first it went through you know, the professors and then it went to the in-house counsel, but their audience was the business people and the business people and the in-house people maybe had some tension about what the goals are. I don't remember, so don't take this as any like one particular client, but like it's having that and knowing the best way to present what not just do your work product, but how to present your work product and how to give alternatives so that they can make their best decisions um, using your input is is something that only clinics can provide, and that's, I think, the most valuable thing. I don't think I'm adding anything particularly new, but it, it, just to reiterate uh, what, the, what both Florina and Sam has said, providing a space to learn about counseling and being creative. Um, working in a creative institution, the legal department is often viewed as the suits and you know the department of no, we very much reject that. We are the department of yes, as Sam said. And also, I think what we do is extremely creative, um, trying to get to solutions for some of the um, very, very, very creative ideas our clients have <laughs> of how we can, can execute those in as little time as possible um, in a, a reasonable and risk-free manner. Um, but so just learning to be creative, having a space to experiment and come up with different ideas and find your voice and then also develop your own opinions but then also learn how to counsel and keep your opinions um, they inform your counseling for sure but then also helping your client come to their own decision because ultimately it is our client's decision on, on a lot um, of the calls uh, and we're just helping them to get to a certain place um I like the diversity of projects that are in the space because I get to learn a lot of areas of law that I didn't previously know about. Like I didn't have a good idea of like what tech law encompasses and I learned about access to medicine, um, that, that the whole space of the project that I was working in. So I think, um, yes, um, so I guess like keep that keep that up. I also really like the diversity of speakers who show up because then I get a better sense of what careers are out there besides um, the more obvious ones like big law or the the better known public interest organizations. So, um, yeah, I had another thought. I forgot what it is. <laughs> Sorry. If you remember, okay. we'll come back to you. <laughs> uh, but so I'm going to put you all down for. So Kiana on the last panel said that the clinic was perfect. It sounds like you all agree. Nice. <laughs> um, we have a few minutes left. I, I do have more questions, but I did want to leave space for folks from the audience. If anyone has any questions, uh, I think that mic has disappeared. There's a mic over there. We could also come and hand you a mic if anyone has questions. Oh, did you? Please. Yeah, do you want to see if that, that one was working? I think it's working. Uh, so I think a few people touched on this. I remember Sam and Ethan's comments about this, but I guess you're working with private organizations, but you know, you're know you in the clinic and one of the clinic's values is public interest. So how do you talk to clients about public interest? And maybe that client cares about their bottom line and is it just you're talking about litigation risk that happens to like align with public interest values? Are you talking about reputational harms? How do you have that conversation? Um, well, uh, in the context of drafting a privacy policy, I'll ask them about, you know, 
why, why they're collecting certain type of data and what it's used for. Because sometimes I think there's a belief that like the more data you collect, the better, regardless of whether or not you know what it's for and if, if you have any use for it. Um, because like just in case, like in the future, you might have be able to like do something with that data. Um, so you, you might want to like, I, I believe in, you know, privacy by design principles and this is my view. So you try to advise them and kind of talk about like the risk of you collecting so much data and not having a good plan on like how to manage it and like when, uh, and like to maintain the integrity of it, like that, that could be a problem in the long run. There could be upcoming legislation, um, and there's a lot of state laws that's being passed right now. So I think that's one way you can talk about it. Um, and at the end of the day, it's uh, you can give your advice, and if the client doesn't listen to you, it's that's just just what it is. <laughs> Can't really do do much about. It. They they have their own interests and their own projects that they're working on, and you try to steer them in a direction that you think it's like it's best for both their business interests, but also good for the public um, public interest. Um, but that that's the most you can really do. Yeah, I don't talk to clients about public interest. I ju it does not come up. Um, your point about reputational harm, that sometimes comes up. That's the best place where you have an avenue to be like, you know, this would look pretty bad if it got out, or this would look really bad if this is the move you choose to make. Um, and then also, this is, I think, less of a hot issue lately, but in the patent troll context, there are clients who want to litigate a patent case all the way and then seek attorney's fees and be really aggressive. And that's a public interest thing softly because even though it's them trying to get money out of the third party, Really, it's we want to deter bad actors from taking advantage of the system. And I love being on those cases. Um, so to the extent I can avoid being on a patent troll case on the plaintiff's side, I will. Anything to add? From my perspective, it comes up from my clients all the time. I, again, from the, because we're a nonprofit, um, and we're looking to see what we can do to make the arts more accessible. So choose what you pay, free programming. Um, we're trying to be as artist-friendly as possible in our contracts, um, making our contracts legible and readable for, for artists who don't have counsel and don't have representation and taking you know, the stance that this is their art, they, they own it, um, not, not us. And so we're really working through our contracts to make them as simple and easy to read as possible um, and take really balanced approach. And that's all driven by, by my clients. Yeah, and I think I'll just add, um, you know, one really important thing to, to remember is that, yes, you are a lawyer, you're there to give legal advice, but you can also give business advice. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the times lawyers are almost like afraid to stray past, you know, the legal advice. And um, especially if you end up in-house, you are a very valuable um, perspective that your business teams have not had exposure to for the most part. Um, so you might see a way that lawyers could be a customer of the thing that your company creates. Um, and it might be a, a product idea that no one's ever thought of because they're not lawyers. Um, you know, I've, I've, we've done that a couple of times. Um, but you, know, you can give the advice to say, you know, yes, technically you can do the thing that you're asking me if you can do. The answer is yes. But isn't there a better way to do it? What if we did this? What if you did that? What if you, you know, didn't do this thing? What if you, you know, inserted something here to tell people about why this thing is happening? Like, there's just so many things that you can see that, you know, that perspective may not exist in the end team, in the sales team, in the marketing team. So, don't be afraid to just give your view. 
Thank you. So sadly, we're past time, so we have to leave it there. Can you all join me in thanking our panelists? Thank you all. We have another half hour-ish break, the next and final. The Engelberg Center Live podcast is a production of the Engelberg Center on Innovation, Law, and Policy at NYU Law and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. Our theme music is by Jessica Batke and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. Mm-hmm.